Online learning has become vital to our children's educational system. But can online learning systems really offer the same or more value to students? Welcome to Graduating Anxiety, the podcast that gives you an inside look into the academic challenges that students struggling with anxiety face. I'm your host, Alex Merrill. On this episode of Graduating Anxiety, I'm honored to speak to Christina Peyer-Deculius, the President and Chief Operating Officer of Digital Ed. Digital Ed is a platform dedicated to shaping the world through digital learning. Their software, Mobius, is currently one of the most innovative and robust learning tools for science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. Hey, Christina, thanks for coming to the show today. Thank you so much, Alex. Thanks for having me. Tell us, uh, how did you start your career in ed tech? Well, I, I guess early in my career, I'd say maybe 15-ish years ago, I worked for an organization that uh, developed computation software for math and engineering, and that was used both in the commercial and academic space. And so a huge proportion of my customers were actually professors and researchers that used that software. And, and we were using it to help them bridge the gap between what was taught in class with the types of applications that were related to them in real world. And then from there, I moved into more software development in the automotive space and, and had a had a little bit more of a, of a input into the way that people onboard engineering professionals and educating them as well. So I'd say that I probably have been in and around the ed tech space for quite some time, certainly longer than has been referred to as ed tech. But I'd say digital ed is the, the first focused education technology sector I've been in. Not uh, not to date you too much, but are we talking about the '90s here, or <laughs> I'd say early 2000s is when I when oh, I joined. Okay. So I'm going to stop right there. It doesn't have to be too much dated. <laughs> <laughs> Give you a range, right? Right. <laughs> um, and what sort of what drew you to the industry? Uh, I'd say there's certainly a lot of factors, uh, but I would say the most compelling part was that that realization that the global education market was was ready to shift their long-standing approaches to learning and, and kind of reimagine what it means to put the student at the center of that experience. And and that's something that I've always been interested in. How do you put the customer at the center of whatever you're providing, whether it's software or services? So uh, when you start seeing the entire market shifting in that direction, that's when innovation happens. And, and that's what I am at heart. I'm a, I love innovation. I love technology, and it was something that I really wanted to get a hold of. Well, it's certainly an exciting time then, if that's that's your draw. Certainly, it's been a lot of revolution. STEM topics are difficult to teach, even inside the classroom. Uh, how did digital ed approach uh, building Mobius? Maybe you could tell us a little bit about what Mobius is. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Mobius evolved from a product that, uh, for years, was focused on testing and assessment of student achievement, and was primarily focused on mathematics. So with this, this long history of working with educators that, that poured over the student results alongside with their team, there was this natural progression of refining the lessons that preceded those tests and examinations. And then working with these professors and these instructors, it became clear that from a pedagogical perspective, introducing these little desirable difficulties throughout the learning process and interspersing it with exploration and exercises, it really resulted in better achievement for the students. So really Mobius came to be from the perspective of looking at it as a courseware platform. How do you 
give the entire end-to-end -end experience that delivers that multi-channel approach to student learning so that you can have continuity end-to-end. -end. And that's really where Mobius kind of came about, is to make sure that we pull these proprietary elements together and help for STEM specifically. Because STEM, like you correctly mentioned, it's, it's difficult to teach. There's so many layers mm. that need to be put in front of a student. And if they miss one concept, they're going to fall behind when the next one comes on and the next one and the next one. So uh, Mobius is, is really designed to give students a little bit more space to individualize how much time they want to spend with a particular concept to make sure they can cement it and then be able to layer those other concepts around because STEM has that type of approach. I'm curious, uh, how have you seen uh, Mobius sort of manifest uh, with the onset of the pandemic? How has it sort of evolved? When you look at how we've evolved Mobius for the pandemic, it's really focusing on how do we provide the right guidance and materials to help getting uh, these instructors on board quickly? And how do we make sure that that approach to asynchronous learning combined with some motions and, and ability to work synchronously with a professor are combined in one big experience. And, and that's kind of how we focus more of our time specifically for this year. It's, it's a really tough thing to guide a student in a natural way through a progression of lessons without any help. And right now with so many people struggling with trying to just find a quiet space to work, let alone trying to find the time that's dedicated to it, we've really spent a lot of time on best practices and, and using the experience of previous instructors to say, okay, well, here's how you can guide your lesson so that students can take little small chunks of time whenever they have the time for the pre-work and then find a time where you can come together for that time when you're really diving in and having a discussion and really exploring the real concepts when you're face-to-face -face or through Zoom or any other video chat. So it sounds like really segmenting the um, instruction, uh, breaking it into pieces. Actually, absolutely. Uh, the okay. smallest pieces of chunks that we can do, the better, just to make sure that if a student has multiple hours to themselves, awesome. They could chain all these together and get through it and go through the, the exercises and not be held back. But if they only have 20 or 30 minutes, a 15-minute chunk of a lesson still has value. I think that makes a lot of sense with the compartmentalization of our, uh, our lives right now, where you're jumping from school to family life to responsibilities outside of school, like within a sort of 20 minute span. So um, I find that really interesting that that's, that's where your um, challenge has been. But the focus of our podcast is uh, to discuss mental health of students. I'm curious for students with anxiety and other sort of learning disabilities, how have you uh, been able to tailor your product for them? The whole learning experience, when we when we storyboard our product and propose enhancements to the platform, it really is the whole end-to-end -end experience that we're looking at. And what puts a student at ease is, that is in their optimal frame of mind to absorb a new concept really is unique to every individual. Uh, so we've placed a great deal of our attention on trying to make sure the software doesn't get in their way. Things like simple navigation using like the uh, similar constructs and usage patterns that you would see in regular navigation online. That's one element of just, okay, you've seen this before. Uh, let's not get, get too 
pulled back by the navigation of the system. But then we've also added configurable parameters that the instructor can pull for each student as well. Uh, things like extending the amount of time to take an assignment. If they normally only have 25 minutes or a day, well maybe individual students could ask for a little bit longer, maybe get three days to hand it in, or uh, multiple tries. We've, uh, we've enabled that type of a parameter so you can do three or four tries at something before you hand in the best mark. Uh, and that way it just gives a little bit more of, a, of leeway for the instructor to help tailor to those students that are they're struggling a little bit more or that just need a little bit more space. And I'd say the, the last bit are, are the culture as a company, we take accessibility very seriously uh, and most of our, our the vendors in the space do. AODA standards and that similar guidance, it gets weaved into our stories through development. So all of these different elements are making sure that there's multiple ways of accessing the information so that if one day a live video stream is just too much for a student that they maybe just want a transcript, being able to weave back and forth mm. from that are the types of things we've enabled. Oh, that's a, that's a good idea. Wow. How have you sort of dealt with this um, this idea that basically if a kid takes a sort of test or an exam or, or, that, or that sort of thing online, that they can basically just look up the information. I mean, I know there are some, I mean, there, there are some sort of uh, technologies, I, I think, d developed to, to kind of watch that. I don't know if the College Board has, has done that sort of thing, but I'm just curious what your um, sort of experience has been with like the, uh, I don't know what to call it, cheating phenomena. I mean, you'll, you'll hear kids <laughs> say, I didn't do well, but 80% of my class, you know, they're just copying the answers um, or looking it up online. What's been your experience with that? Well, you know, the instructors that we speak to about this topic say, uh, say a lot of the same things. If a student is hyper motivated to cheat, they're going to find a way to cheat. So there, there's the part of trying to eliminate it completely probably isn't the right approach. What these instructors are doing, though, is looking at it a little bit differently. So I think some of the software that's out there, they call it proctoring software, where you can monitor what a student is doing, looking at their eye movement and what's happening around them. Uh, that's actually problematic in some ways. So I'm, I'm not in love with the way that this is done today. I think that there are things that can be done better. I know it's a start and I know what they're trying to accomplish. So I think in some cases it may be appropriate. Big brother um, is watching you. Oh, exactly. <laughs> and you know, our technology for AI and facial recognition is, is known to be problematic in terms of certain biases. So I think mm. that's the part that you don't want to go into an experience where it's just going to add more anxiety to the student that I'm about to be biased by a machine knowing that these algorithms are, are still being developed. So they're getting better. But I think there's a ways to go there. So um, when it comes to creating an assessment online with a student, the types of uh, conversations we're having with instructors, and I was just on a panel with the UK instructor team uh, through uh, another higher education pod, uh, that we're talking about more creative assessments. How do we assess students in a way that isn't necessarily high stakes assessment? Now it's different types of way of assessing their knowledge and their comprehension, mm -hmm. either with mm -hmm. smaller stakes tests along the way to make sure mm -hmm. they keep on top, mm -hmm. but then mm -hmm. group work yep. and things of the sort that helps them really demonstrate knowledge rather than being in a simulated exam test environment. So I think that's the side that I'm more partial to, it feels like the right approach when it looks at the way we do online without trying to really focus on how do I make sure the person that says they're there is actually the one that's taking that test.
Christina uh, touched on some of the possibilities for catering Mobius to kids with learning disabilities, particularly in terms of advocating for themselves with the uh, professor. I think that's really important, being able to provide those channels that make it very easy to speak up. Often adults think, oh yeah, it's not a big deal. There's no stigma attached to having a learning disability or ADHD or anxiety. Kids are perfectly you know, able to to speak up and even with their own children, sort of forgetting the amount of almost paranoia that comes with judgment for kids and young adults really. I've found high school kids in particular will do just about anything. They will set themselves on fire before making them look different to their peers. So anyways, I think there's a real opportunity with really with some of this online software to be able to make that a little bit more discreet, present an option you know, that's very easy for them to use and to be somewhat anonymous, at least to their peers, in, in getting the help that they need. I mean, that they're not, they're not gonna learn without. That's where I think there's a big opportunity. What are your thoughts on how uh, STEM students can better manage their stressful workloads, um, especially in the early days of university? I mean, I think that's, kids that are first going to college are uh, facing a lot of different challenges they've never faced before. We deal with a lot of kids who are, uh, have failed to make that transition um, or are really, really struggling with it. So I'm just curious what your, um, what your thoughts are on that? Well, you know, I I'm, I have a, a personal experience with that. When I look back to my experience as a first year student engineering, I struggled a lot. I, I was a tremendous high school student. My grades seemed to come relatively easy, and I made it into university in a competitive engineering program without too much friction. So when I got into first year, I quickly found myself at the middle and bottom half of the class, which was a completely foreign spot for me up until that experience. And, and I saw a lot of the struggling that I went through with this heavy, unfamiliar workload, yet I would look around, it would seemingly seem as if my colleagues were doing just fine <laughs> and they didn't have a problem. And, and that's, a, that's a very unnerving thing to go through. And what, what really got me out of my funk was uh, realizing that, no, actually, most of my peers aren't doing that great. They're just managing their time a little bit better. Um, and that's really what drew me to think about, okay, forget about comparing my patterns and the way that I expect to work based on the person beside me or three rows ahead or on the other Zoom screen. What do I need to do to slow down and really manage my time in a way that allows me to schedule in study time? And, and that's really what I ended up doing to manage that workload. Uh, and, it, and I give that advice to the interns that come to our company nowadays. And they say the same thing when they come back. So we're, we're lucky enough to have interns that come back term over term. And, and, and they say that it was such a big difference to them to say, if I have a three-hour lecture, I'm going to plan three hours of review before that next three-hour lecture comes up. And whether it's an hour after or two hours, it's almost equating the class time with study time. And while that makes your schedule look like a nightmare because you've blocked out all this time, a big chunk of it is productive time and it's a multiplier because that's what you're retaining as you're reinforcing as you go. So I'd say that's the best advice that worked for me and I've been sharing that with others, anyone that'll listen because it really made, <laughs> it did wonders for me when I was in school. Uh, I think you hit the nail on the head there. I mean, you know, I've seen the number 38% of kids, this is before the pandemic, we're not able to make it through the freshman year of college. And I think that's a that's probably the main reason by far. 
in college, it's like, here's four books, kid. Like, we'll see you in October. And it takes a whole a set of skills that they've never necessarily had to use or like even innately have the capability of just jumping into. So I wonder too, with your software, if it doesn't help uh, with your platform, those, what I would call, I guess, executive functions um, for kids. I'm just thinking back to what you were saying about how it's, it segments the activities um, for professors. And I feel like that's one of the key skills in executive function. Is that, is that true? Yeah, absolutely. I think just making sure that you can also guide the student uh, in the same way that you would guide your own time as a professor. You have an hour lecture, you want some time for questions. There's things that you're going to do to make sure that you manage that time to make it optimal for the students to actually absorb. I had one professor that used to come up with a, uh, a cue card and it was it was incredible to me. He had l just a little index card with maybe two equations and he would spend the entire class recreating them from first principles. So he would walk us through, but he knew exactly when he'd start, when he'd end. And by the time he was done, there was enough time for us to ask questions like, well, why did you add that equation in there? And how did that get simplified? So that those lessons that we saw as examples just reinforce the fact that these small chunks, rather than trying to jam a bunch mm -hmm. of information in one spot, it just mm -hmm. helps reinforce the mm -hmm. concepts, in particular for STEM. I'm sure there are exceptions to that rule. Well, I mean, the human attention span, too. I don't know about you, but I, right. I can barely <laughs> focus on something beyond 20 minutes um, without taking a break. I mean, that's just, I guess that's kind of the way that, well, my mind works anyways. Absolutely. Let's discuss the elephant in the room. I, we sort of touched on it already, but uh, covid uh, how did the pandemic affect your business? Well, it's, it's funny because so many people that I've spoken to who learn about what digital ed does, what I do, and and what our value proposition is, almost immediately say something along the lines of, oh, wow, your must, business must be skyrocketing. Good for you. Mm. <laughs> and, you know, yes, absolutely. There's, a, there's an understanding of the impact to our business and the fact that the barriers that we used to have in just talking about the fact that remote delivery of education is a thing and it can be effective. We don't necessarily have that conversation anymore. But there's a nuance here that people don't seem to see in terms of the distinction of remote learning versus online education and how that taking something that used to be face-to-face -face and just turning it into a Zoom lecture is very different than adapting materials to be delivered asynchronously or within a blended environment. And that that takes a lot of work. And our instructors are, they're working so hard and they're tired. That's the other thing that I see that they need help. Uh, as much guidance and help as we can give them, how much of a helping hand and and some best practices that we can offer them to help accelerate themselves into this remote path because the combination of asynchronous and synchronous is not something that everyone's been doing forever. We have a lot of professors that have been. So those ones that were already doing the here, take, take these lessons, do this on your own. Yeah, and when okay. you're ready to come to class, <laughs> exactly. They, they've they actually, it's grown our business with those schools because mm. their peers are like, well, that doesn't look so bad. Can, can I have right. some of that? Let's right. do some of that. Right. Right. Um, but it's not the type of thing that you can just, that just happens. There's a, mm. there's a careful consideration on how do you take a lesson that you can speak to and now make that independently navigable by a student where they can take the lesson. It's a very different approach. So overall, what it did is it, it helped us get introduced to the conversation, but there's still lots of work to do to make sure you adapt those materials. Totally. I mean, and drawing on my experience as a teacher, there's a lot of 
shortcuts I think that teachers have to take. I mean, there's mm-hmm. just, <laughs> there's so much to, that goes into a successful lesson planning and like being able to manage the classroom and just, and I think mm-hmm. teachers are creatures of habit as they go along. And that's, that's what makes good teachers actually is that they have those patterns and routines. And now this year, the, the huge cross-section of teachers and professors have not been able to sort of to draw on those on those shortcuts to draw on those patterns that they've that they've used like so successfully throughout their careers so that's interesting you're seeing a lot of fatigue I mean I think that's a society-wide thing but I can certainly understand I mean we're asking a lot of a lot of teachers and professors right now absolutely one thing that we didn't really touch on too much is the potential for virtual reality I think Virtual reality has tremendous potential for building student communities. I mean, some of the forums you can visit in virtual reality are really quite astounding. I just did a, a demo with Engage, which is one of these softwares for the Oculus headset. Being able to go to a forum and hang out with your peers and explore and experiment and see some of these 360 virtual realities and see your sort of friends' faces actually on the avatars and people to interact with those. I think that's really where the potential lies in terms of uh, virtual socializing. You really feel like you're sort of in the room with that person or with that set of people. That's where I think we really ought to look. I think it's really hard to um, to do that in a two-dimensional just kind of Zoom uh, way, which is I think what society is discovering and getting this sort of Zoom fatigue as we've gone along in the uh, pandemic. So, I mean, prior to COVID, students were uh, either used to solely in-person learning or hybrid, you know, mixture of in-person and online. Um, How did you integrate elements of in-person learning into your platform? Yeah, this is an ongoing discussion for us and our customers. And, And there's definitely a healthy debate on how to best design online delivery where you can use the multitude of channels that are available to you. Uh, what we've historically seen is that, and, and I'm going to do historically now just to set this year's experience aside for a moment, because I think it wasn't quite yet planned for everyone. But the instructors who found the most success with their students did offer this mix of synchronous and asynchronous learning for their students. So, so they would prepare a self-guided lesson and exercises where they'd be expected to complete everything first. And they would do that before, basically to prime the students before they met for a live class discussion or or group work for deeper interaction. That synchronous element is key to really developing the student's narrative on a topic. So the most success we found are the people that did combine the two. Now, the synchronous thing could be online in a course, uh, in a lecture hall, I mean, like in person or Zoom. But what we did with our tool was really just make sure that that continuity was there. So if it was something as simple as just making sure that, okay, on this day, this lecture is going to be online. So when you're done this lesson, click on this Zoom link at this time, because we're all going to get together on an online forum. Or we're going to have a lab group work. So go break out these breakout teams with these people at this time on this date. Um, And then the other bit is just having videos and other type of multi-channel approach integrated with the platform. But there isn't much that um, we are, we don't have a video streaming platform per se where it's live. Like we would link into a Zoom or all these other tools that right. that are available. Uh, so for us, it's mainly just making sure that there's continuity of knowing like what's the student's schedule. If you have to finish these five 
exercises first. Make sure that there's a way to get through check boxes so they can see their progression. And then once they're done there, they know they're ready for that synchronous class and that in face, mm. uh, face to face mm. interaction with the professors and the mm. classmates. Hmm. Interesting, that mixture. Harder than it sounds. Uh, do you believe there's a, a lack uh, of community for students who solely use online products? If so, uh, how have you worked to connect people together? I'd say there's definitely an opportunity to miss that connection uh, if you're solely online. I'm taking an online course for many reasons. One of them is which I'm, I'm in this industry. I want to know what it's like to be a student hmm. within that. Hmm. And uh, it's really hard when it's designed to be asynchronous and independent to feel like there's someone else that's going through the same thing as you. So creating that environment is something that has to be nurtured by the instructor as much as it does by the students in the class. Hmm. So uh, unless the curriculum actually asks for group work or discussion boards or frequent interaction, I'm not quite sure how you can build that that community. <laughs> it's something right. that I think is an ongoing bit. Uh, yeah. we're, we're working on ways to reimagine the group work component from an online perspective. And I'm really excited about where that's headed. I really hope to unveil, unveil something with our tools like in the next year about that. But there's work to do there. And, and I'd say that mm. um, uh, the community aspect is something that needs to be nurtured. That's the only thing that I can see. And uh, we're, we don't have a feature per se to make that happen yet, but I hope to do something really soon with it. We're hoping to actually launch a, a virtual reality um, sort of uh, program with uh, what we're doing. I'm curious what your thinking is on virtual reality, uh, you know, as a way to sort of connect people and to simulate sort of more in-person experience what do, you, what do you see as the sort of current uh, capability of virtual reality? Where do you think that's going? I think there's a lot of promise there for sure. You you see some some it just games. Obviously, the gaming industry is always ahead of <laughs> yeah, the, the they're current. Yeah, on top of it, aren't they? <laughs> exactly. You see these new systems where you have an avatar that looks just like you in in an improved cartoonified way that really does interact with others, and you walk around a space just like you're in a space together. So, uh, whether it's a conference platform or a, a gamified type platform, I think there's a lot of potential there just to be able to run into someone. Oh, hey, I recognize that face and have that conversation. <laughs> I, 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 you can imagine a lot of wonderful things that can come from it. I haven't yet seen uh, a platform that has nailed it from the educational perspective, but mm. there's some really mm -hmm. good things coming up from the conference space. So maybe there's a really good way to marry those two together that people that are now focusing on virtual events and virtual conferences that really do build up that networking type VR approach to now marry that into the education space. So I, I think there's a lot of promise there. Yeah, I mean, that's, to, to be honest, that's kind of where, what I'm looking for right now is like, where is the best educational platform? Mm -hmm. I mean, there's, there, there are some, I, I feel like there are some softwares out there that, uh, that are beginning to address that, but I feel like there's a lot of room for expansion. But yeah, it's, it seems to me like the direction that education is going, just in terms of the online, that that is that is where it's going to end up. I mean, we're going we're to end up having to simulate the in-person experience online. But what, what are some uh, tactics that parents can use to help their uh, children focus on the tasks in front of them? Like everyone else, I'm sure I do not have a foolproof solution for this, of course. Uh, if I've learned anything in my years of experience within the ed tech space is that everyone is different in terms of what gives them the 
perfect space and the optimal space to, to learn whether it's isolation. And sometimes that actually doesn't help people at all, that isolation makes them anxious. So there, there's a lot of different things that we need to best uh, sort out. So I think that the first and foremost is just figure out where they're most comfortable. It doesn't have to be a location. It's even just the ambient noise. If a kitchen table is comfortable, that, that could be okay. Maybe that's the right spot too. And it's just trying to figure out if, if that's conducive to them. But, you know, there's also the very superficial things that can be done just from the computer screen perspective. Uh, mm. Little things like pop-ups and visual distractions and reducing mm. the little yeah. things that pop up and emanate because an email came up. There's very right. easy little things that you can do to make sure that the screen that is being viewed is the only thing that is being viewed at that moment and that the things that really get yourself to want to look away for a student in particular, sometimes they're looking for things to distract them. So a little little color in the corner or a little pop-up or something that flashes will just take them off their game right away. So I think it's a just a simple set of the uh, little superficial things might go a long way and you'd be surprised how much it helps. Okay, well, great. I just wanted to say uh, thank you so much for uh, being on the show, Christina. That was uh, fantastic. I really learned a lot and uh, very interesting stuff. So thank you. Thank you for having me. That was a lot of fun. My biggest takeaway from my conversation with Christina was about sort of the obstacles in revolutionizing educational software. I think by far the greatest obstacle really is traditional attitudes of teachers, professors, um, instructors of all kinds. I think there's a tendency to sort of fall into pattern and routine as a teacher. In fact, many of them sort of rely on what they've done before out of necessity. I mean, it's a really tough job. I mean, try managing 50 or 60 sets of problems. You know, as a teacher of 15 years, boy, it's a really crunch schedule. And um, you do have to sort of, you know, use routines that have worked for you before in the past. If you don't do that, I mean, you're toast. But in falling into those routines and ruts, it makes basically evolution almost impossible. But as Christine has alluded to, many of the teachers and professors have been uh, open and willing to engage in this process, and that has made all the difference. And I think the possibilities out there are just incredible, are just endless, I mean, in terms of virtual reality, in terms of the virtual softwares that are out there. We can basically do almost anything online at this point. The question is, are we willing to? Are we willing to go there? Are we willing to um, allow our kids to experiment with that? Are we willing to take the risk? Are we willing to get out of our comfort zone? Those are the questions I think that determine the direction of education going forward. Thanks for listening to Graduating Anxiety podcast that helps caregivers of anxious learners overcome obstacles to find academic success and build continuously happy lives. If you liked this episode, be sure to give us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. I'm your host, Alex Merrill. See you soon.